Welcome to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Baik, Chief Economist here at DBS. Welcome to our 95th episode. One of the most popular episodes in the history of Kopi Time is episode 25, when we had World Gold Council's Shaghar Fund discuss various dimensions of gold mining, refining, production, demand, investment, and trading. It was a fascinating podcast, but it was more than two years ago, and a lot has happened since then. Think about it. Inflation spikes, war in Ukraine, weaponization of the U.S. dollar, monetary policy tightening and soaring interest rates, things that make people consider gold as a serious investment idea. During that period, gold went from $1,700 an ounce in early 21 to over $2,000 one year ago when the crisis in Ukraine was breaking out. And then it corrected down to 1650 in October of last year and then headed up again, hitting 2000 just a couple of weeks ago at end January. So lots of up and down, but at the same time, when you think about it in its totality, maybe not as volatile and not as replete with downside as other investments like stocks and bonds. Well, with so much going on, it is high time we bring Shao Kai back, whose current title at the World Gold Council is Head of Central Bank Relationship. Shao Kai Fun, a warm welcome back to Thank Kopi. Thank you so Time. much. Thank you for the Kopi. It's great to have you here. Likewise. Cheers. Cheers. Um, I'm going to ask with some housekeeping questions. Sure. Some of them actually I asked you back in 2020, okay. but I think they're so interesting, and some of them have actually evolved in terms of recent events, it's worth going back there. So let's start with your outfit, World Gold Council. Mm -hmm. What is the function? What is the objective? Sure. Um, we are a market development organization for the gold industry. We have a basic mission to enhance and improve the gold market, to grow it, to educate people, to make sure people are aware of how gold fits into a portfolio. We're owned by mining companies, but we don't focus on their specific operations and issues. We focus purely on making sure the gold market is better. If I were to go to the World Gold Council website, what would I see? All sorts of information on uh, gold data, um, supply and demand statistics, price statistics, and a bunch of different tools that we have available, all for free, including tools on gold valuation, on the role of gold in a portfolio, as well as historic information on um, how much gold was bought by central banks, for instance, and also a lot of thematic research. We're definitely going to talk about that. In Indeed, in terms of thematic research, I think you guys put out something called like a 30 years of gold trend, uh, which I thought was very interesting, and, and some of the data that you put out, yeah. which is not exactly the same as the gold data that I would get, say, from the IMF. No, not exactly the same, exactly. Thank you for being a patron of our website, first of all. Right. And you're right to point out, <laughs> for plugging, when I didn't have to plug, uh, 30 Years of Gold Demand Trends, which is our one of our uh, flagship research reports that we send out every quarter. Um, with that, actually, we've uh, created a special report that shows how the gold market has evolved in the last three decades, and it's changed quite a bit. I can imagine, and I want to actually pick your brain on that later on. Uh, but first, very simple question. How scarce is gold? No question from you is ever that simple, <laughs> Timur, but um, gold is relatively scarce. It's, the, I think, the 75th most rare element in the Earth's crust. It is one of the, more, one of the most rare precious metals of, of, of all the categories of precious metals. And according to the U.S. Geological Survey, about 200,000 tons of gold has already been dug up from the Earth's surface, which is more than half of all the gold that exists on Earth. But although 200,000 sounds like a lot of gold, um, because gold is so dense, that only means it can fill about three swimming pools full of gold. So all the gold that exists on Earth that's already been mined can sit inside three swimming pools. Right. A pound of gold is not the same as a pound of bread. 
No, not quite. Huh? Yeah, much smaller. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Less tasty, though. Uh, yes. Well, it's used in food products these days quite a bit. <laughs> Maybe the Atas food products that you yes, like. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, let's uh, talk a little bit about the supply side. Sure. Tell me about the key producers and suppliers out there. Sure. Well, you know, there's a variety of gold mining companies out there. There are lots of large-scale multinational companies. I think uh, in terms of the largest producers last year, Newmont, Barrick, Agnico, Anglo Gold Ashanti, Newcrest, and many others. They're the largest, the larger international producers. And of course, uh, all those companies are our member companies as well. But, you know, there's a wide ecosystem when it comes to gold supply. There are also small scale producers in some countries as well who are, uh, you know, a part of the gold supply chain too. The large companies that you just mentioned, these are multinationals in the truest sense of the word? Yeah, they operate in many different jurisdictions. You know, the headquarters might be one place, but they're gold mining somewhere else. And we're talking gold mostly being mined in Africa? So it's actually quite widespread, and that's one of the interesting uh, facts about gold mining. The dispersion of gold around the world is quite diverse. So gold mining occurs on every continent except Antarctica. Um, and actually, the amount of gold mining by continent is, you know, pretty well balanced. There isn't like one continent that's a huge producer and another continent that's a very small producer. And that means that um, gold is not as susceptible to supply shocks as other commodities might be, those that are focused on one region or even one country. Um, and that adds to sort of the steadiness of gold supply and contributes to gold's diverse price performance as well. Right. So unlike, say, diamond, which is South Africa, I believe Canada, Russia, and then we start running out of places where diamond mining right. happens. Um, what about refining? So refining is also spread out in a lot of different places, but there's a concept in the gold market called good delivery, which is a list of specifications that makes a gold bar acceptable for trade in the London market. Um, and that good delivery is, uh, is a list that's defined by the London Bullion Markets Association, and only select refiners are allowed to create good delivery bars. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want a list of refiners, I'd consult the LBMA list of good delivery refiners. Okay. Are there a number of refiners in this region? Yeah, there are quite a bit, including one in our own backyard in Jurong, uh, I think Metalore. So if you're based in Singapore, you want to go check out a refinery, and there's one in Jurong, not too far. How about that? I think you pointed this out even two years ago. I bet you most people were shocked to hear that, and many will be shocked to hear it this time too, right here in Singapore. Um, how much is being produced each year, and what's been the trend like? Sure. So on average, uh, I think it's about 3,000 tons or so being produced each year of newly mined gold. In 2022, it was roughly 3,600 tons. And that, it has been a growing trend over time. Uh, so since we released that 30-year special report, we looked at some of these trends. And I think in 1992, it was about 2,200 tons of gold being newly mined every year. So the overall uh, growth in gold supply has kind of matched the growth in gold demand, uh, maybe slightly less, but it has matched the growth in gold demand. And like I said, we, you know, gold is now being mined in more, in more jurisdictions, more countries, and it's quite diverse in terms of geographic sourcing. So fairly steady production profile if we look at the last couple of decades. Yeah, more or less. It has grown, of course, because the gold market has grown. So from the low twos to the, to the high threes. The high yeah. threes, exactly. But another source of gold supply is gold recycling, because unlike other commodities, gold isn't destroyed when it's consumed. So, you know, people can sell their old jewelry into the, back into the supply chain, and the amount of recycling varies year on year based on the gold price. So am I correct in understanding that electronics is a big source of gold and people try to scavenge gold from old electronic products? That's true. There's about $20 worth of gold in every iPhone. So it's worth, you know, uh, when electronics re-enter the supply chain, people do try to remove the gold components uh, to sell that on. 20 bucks in every iPhone. How about that? Um, 
I want to talk about the demand side of gold. Of course, sure. that's the big story, but not yet. A yeah. couple of more questions uh, about the finance and commerce of gold. Sure. Uh, let's talk about the gold market. Uh, where and how is gold traded? So gold traded around the world is actually one of the most liquid asset classes. I think a lot of people have a misconception that because gold is a physical asset, that it's not a very liquid financial asset class. But actually, it's more liquid than some of the major European sovereign bond markets, more liquid than the Dow Jones Industrial Index, for instance, and it's traded around the world. Um, like I might have mentioned, London is a major center for gold trading. So the over-the-counter market in London makes up about half of the daily trading volume for gold. But there are other major trading centers as well. The COMEX market in New York, for instance, the Shanghai Gold Exchange and the Shanghai Futures Exchange, they are all large components of the, the global gold trading ecosystem too. And in recent years, we've seen a lot more gold ETFs coming to the scene, and they're exchange-traded, so they're traded on equity markets across many different jurisdictions. And beyond the spot, futures and derivatives? Yep. Yeah, they exist as well. Futures, derivatives, options, they all exist for the gold market, too. Primarily in London, or um, even I mean, in Shanghai, there's like, you know, you can take... Certainly in London, I think some of the bullion banks there offer those services. There are bullion banks based in Singapore as well that might offer those services. Um, but I think it takes place all around the world. Right. And gold ETFs, you just mentioned that. Let's talk a little more about it. Has it become a big thing? Has it always been a big thing? So gold ETFs have been around for just around 20 years now, and they truly changed how gold was being used as an investment because they made it much easier for all sorts of investors to access gold. They really democratized gold investment. So instead of thinking, how do I, if I want to buy gold, how do I buy it? Do I have to go down to uh, you know, a coin store, for instance, buy a gold coin? Now you can just type it into your E-Trade account or whatever account, and then you can add gold into your portfolio instantly. Is there a way for us to know whether the ETFs are largely used by retail investors or is it largely by institutional? So US listed ETFs publish um, the holders up to a certain threshold, but I'd say you know, the retail level probably is below that threshold. But you know, anecdotally, I do know many retail investors that use um, gold ETFs to add gold exposure, and also many institutional investors use gold ETFs as well. And just to get back to one of your earlier points, um, the, the ETF gold market has grown significantly in the last 20 years. The amount of gold that they have amassed totally is comparable to some of the large-scale official sector holders, central bank holders of gold now. So to, the, to your point of gold being liquid, gold being widely held, uh, immediately then it becomes a useful collateral. Uh, I know from personal experience that in South Asia, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, gold lean is a big business. Loans around gold uh, is, is a big business. Is this something a South Asia specific phenomenon or do we see this all over the world? I mean, you can use it at a you know personal retail level. You see pawn shops where you can pledge the gold and Everywhere get cash. Everywhere in the world, yeah. But not just at the personal level, at the governmental level, there are countries that use gold as collateral to get access to US dollar liquidity during times of need. Uh, I think you know a couple of years back during the financial crisis, there were countries that did just that. So it's not just you know pawning your gold necklace uh, at, at a high street pawn shop. Also, at the central bank level, they're doing the same thing. Right. So I think the 90s were very interesting examples. India in the early 90s was in severe balance of payment stress, and that was the biggest, so the last straw for India to use their gold reserve to borrow money. And of course, I remember I was in grad school at that time in the 97, 98 Asian financial crisis, mm. the Korean households were donating, donating uh, pieces of gold, jewelry, and bars, and so on to the government. So. Right. But India ultimately got the last laugh because it was able to buy back the That's gold right, from the IMF, I think in 2009, 2010 or so. And now actually the RBI, India's central bank, has been buying gold almost every month for the last few years. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Actually, there's another interesting anecdote with respect to the IMF and gold. Uh, when the original quota allocation of the IMF was done, certain amount of valuation was based on gold from each central bank's reserves. They had did a big revaluation exercise of that 30, 40 years later, right. and it sort of unleashed a huge amount of resources for all these countries, and in a way, it added to global liquidity at a time Absolutely. of gold. Absolutely, the gold price has gone up so much. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I want to stay with this trading investment aspect of gold. Um, when you look at asset managers around the world uh, in a typical portfolio, mm -hmm. precious metals probably have a role to play, not everywhere, but in many cases. Mm -hmm. What's your sense? You know, What do asset managers do in terms of weight toward precious metals, particularly gold? There's no single answer to that, of course. You know, Every portfolio is different based on the portfolio composition, risk tolerance, investment objectives, et cetera. Um, in our analysis, we found that almost every portfolio at the institutional level, and also maybe at the retail level, can benefit from some exposure to gold. It can usually add, uh, it can increase risk-adjusted returns for the most part, because its behavior is so different than most other asset classes that investors are exposed to. It has very little correlation to equities. Its correlation is very low to fixed income, for instance. So it really adds a lot of diversification value, but also potential upside. And that's something that I think people forget about. People usually think of gold as either downside protection or a hedge against inflation, but actually during times when there's a bull market in the S&P, um, the correlation of gold to risk assets becomes positive. So although it won't go up as much as you know a, a risk asset would, it's not saying that it's going to go down during right. good periods as well. However, during a downturn, though, you do see gold's safe haven characteristics kick in. When the S&P has a major pullback, then gold's correlation to the S&P becomes negative. So you're able to capture a bit of the upside while also protecting yourself on the downside as well. Absolutely. Shelka, earlier... At the beginning of the podcast, I talked about gold's movement from 1600 to 2000 and so on, but those are US dollar prices. Mm. If somebody's sitting in the emerging markets, like say in India, where the rupee on average depreciates against the US dollar by 5-7%, mm. it's a very different picture. I mean, it's like an almost constant upward sloping line in local currency terms right. as far as gold holding is concerned. It's the dollar one that has greater degree of volatility, but even that, as you point out, uh, is not as volatile as some other risk assets. No, that's a very good point. Not just EM currencies as well. I think in sterling terms and yen oh, terms, yes. gold has hit record highs recently. Exactly. But specifically for EM markets, I think gold has that special connection of being um, something that is widely trusted by the average household. In a market like Turkey, for instance, where the lira goes through periods of, of you know, a lot of volatility, people turn to gold because it's something they trust. And it's actually translated into more gold usage in the formal financial system in Turkey as well. Where else? Where else do we see huge gold holdings? So India, of course, you know, there's a lot of household gold as jewelry, of course, but it can be pawned and used as a financial asset when needed. I think in Southeast Asia, um, countries like Vietnam, for instance, there was a lot of personal gold holding as well. And we definitely see gold's role in this as a way for many households at the very bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder to get access to the financial system because they may not have access to formal banking, That's right. but they trust gold. Um, and how do we marry these two um, factors together? It's something we're exploring a lot at the World Gold Council in that how can gold play more of a role in financial inclusion in these emerging markets? The Chinese are also a big purchasers and holders of gold? Absolutely. China, I think, is the largest single consumer market for gold right now. Jewelry, but also in terms of investment bars and coins, too, they're, they're a very big factor in the market. Right. This advent of financial technology-driven wealth trading platforms that we have seen proliferate, you, know, mm. you talked about E-Trade earlier, are we seeing fintech entering the gold area? So instead yeah. of holding bunches 
in physical gold, you can actually trade gold through various fintech means? Yeah, there's a lot of startups that are trying to explore stable coins based on gold, for instance. Startups that explore how to uh, facilitate better or easier gold trading. So the entire ecosystem in the startup community, I think they're all looking at ways to make gold part of that, that conversation as well. I, I saw a startup in South Asia recently where they have a little uh, icon in your phone, you touch it, for even $5, you can start owning a fraction of a coin, and yeah. they show it on the screen as you keep on adding. And because of the fintech pipe that they have, you can use that to send you know, one one-hundredth of an ounce of gold to uh, a kid for his birthday, yeah. save or, or find ways to monetize it, which I thought was very, very interesting. I've seen that in China too, some of the major payments platforms there. You can send grains of gold to each other. You can, you can buy grains of gold, so that's quite interesting. Or a defined grain. I don't know what their official definition is, but they showed me a picture. It's just a tiny little tiny speck little fraction, of gold, yeah. basically. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Um, I checked out the uh, website of yours, and I saw a couple of things that I thought we should talk about. So tell us about the responsible gold mining principle. Sure. Um, the World Gold Council is absolutely committed to making the gold market more transparent, more trustable, uh, and more accessible to the wider audience. And one of the ways we want to do that is to make sure that people can access gold and know that that gold was sourced in a responsible way. So the responsible gold mining principles is something we developed a few years back. It's actually a framework to know that all the gold that's entering the supply chain was sourced responsibly. And we actually ask all of our member companies to adopt the RGMPs as part of their membership process. Um, it's been uh, enacted for a few years now. I think we've gotten a lot of good traction with it. And it's part of a larger initiative that we're calling Gold 247 to really make sure the gold market is sustainable and, um, and continues to be a major part of the financial discussion going forward. Very interesting. And uh, is the notion of conflict-free gold standard related to this, or is it a subset of that? So that was an older standard that we okay. developed in, I think, 2012, also in concert with the gold mining industry. Where, to use a crude analogy, it was kind of like the Kimberley process yeah. for diamonds, yeah. where we wanted to ensure that the gold that you bought was not used to fuel conflict or unrest in, in certain markets. And that also got you know a lot of signatories and you know kind of was the beginning of a lot of our work in standard setting and helping to create guidance for the industry. So when you say signatories, are you talking about corporates or you're talking about sovereign countries? Uh, corporates, gold mining companies. Right, right. So as long as they are abiding by certain principles and standards, it's basically at the country level, it's going to be the case because they're dominant players in those right. countries. But we also work with governments and central banks on these topics too. One interesting aspect of the, of the central bank story on gold has been the, the emergence of a lot of domestic gold buying where the central bank acts as the largest or the sole off-taker in many markets of domestic gold production. And therefore, they're able to have you know, outsized power in promoting regulation, promoting responsible mining principles to their local gold mining industry because they're the only buyer, the only, only legal buyer in that case. Oh, how interesting. So is that the case in South Africa? South Africa had such a program, I think, a couple decades before. It's okay. been dormant since. But we've seen these type of gold buying programs active in the Philippines, in Mongolia, uh, recently in many African and Latin American countries too. They've been starting up these processes because it's beneficial for the central bank. Instead of paying for gold with U.S. dollars, so exchanging one reserve asset for another, they can pay for gold in, in local currency. They can basically buy a reserve asset um, and add it to their reserves. And at the same time, we see this as a conduit for us to use the central bank's power in the market to disseminate these best practices on ESG, on responsible sourcing. That's fantastic. Okay, I was not aware of this. Uh, very good. We will talk about central bank purchases a little later sure. and more. Um, 
Islamic finance and gold. It's a bit of a niche area, but I think you guys have been involved there. Yeah, we created the Sharia standard on gold, I think in 2016 or so. And I think it, it's really helped to clarify what's permissible, what's usable about gold in an Islamic context. And what's great is that you know the Islamic finance sector is missing a true safe haven asset. Most of the safe haven assets in conventional finance are interest-bearing government bonds, for Then instance. you have to reverse structure it to make it Sharia compliant. Exactly, you have to make it gold. a sukuk. Yeah. Um, and there are sovereign sukuks out there, but the issuers are countries like Malaysia, for instance, that aren't no, not double or triple A, the, the same safe haven assets that conventional finance has access to. But by making gold accessible to Islamic investors, we're basically opening, opening up a very large and liquid market for them to use as a safe haven or for other purposes. And it's, I think, introduced a, a new element of, of safety into the Islamic finance market because they didn't have such a safe haven before. Right. Uh, actually, again, going back to your website, I thought that some of the work that you guys have done there is you know, terrific. All right. Demand side. Sure. We've already touched on jewelry a bit, electronics a bit, central bank a bit. So put it all together for me. How has gold demand among all these different actors evolved over the last, say, decade or two? Sure. It's been actually a tremendous evolution, leading to really structurally higher demand for gold in the last one or two decades. Um, one major aspect, as you said, is jewelry demand, specifically coming from India and China. But because these two markets have grown so significantly, both in terms of GDP, but also the purchasing power right. at the individual level, the I think they've tripled in terms of their, their consumer gold demand between 1992 and 2022, according to our 30-year uh, report. So they've been a major factor in generating higher levels of sustainable and, and transformative structural demand for gold. Another major change has been ETFs, like I said. Um, you know, before they were invented, the average investor probably, even if they wanted to invest in gold, you know, there were certain stumbling blocks or certain impediments to them getting access. But the ETFs have just made gold investing that much easier. And they've also grown significantly in size. The third major structural change has been the shift of central banks from net sellers after the end of the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s to net buyers uh, after the 2008 financial crisis. So basically, for the last 13 years or so, central banks have been net buyers of gold, with almost all of that buying coming, coming from emerging market central banks. And the Middle Eastern central banks and wealth funds, are they the biggest buyer, or is it really the, the Chinese and the Indian central banks so are the biggest players? The single largest central bank buyer has been Russia. Uh -huh. um, China has been number two. The Middle Eastern central banks have been active, especially last year. We saw purchases coming from Egypt, from Iraq, from the UAE, from Qatar. So they're active as well. But it's actually been quite a broad phenomenon in terms of geographic diversity, diversity of economic type, diversity of the currency regime the, the central bank runs. We've seen buying from the likes of Thailand, from Brazil, um, from, from South Korea, maybe about 10 years ago. India, as I mentioned, ad added gold. The Central Asian countries, the stands, they've also been very active as well. Even this country, Singapore, the MAS added gold, I think, in 2021, um, which was you know, one of the rare occasions where a developed market added mm -hmm. gold post-2008. You and I had a conversation a few weeks ago where you said that if I were to just go to the IMF website and look at central bank reserves data, of which there is a breakdown for gold, I would not be capturing all the gold that was purchased last year or the year before. So tell me a bit about your data generating process and why is it different from what the central banks are reporting? Sure. Um, so this is a very good point because we actually reported the highest level of central bank buying ever in 2022. Um, collectively, they bought 1,100 tons on a net basis, um, of which 
a big portion of our own calculation, it says it's from unreported buying. Hmm. So there is the IMF official statistics, which central banks, they, they populate every month. They update a spreadsheet, That's send right. it to the IMF. But it may not be the most accurate or real-time um, picture of what's happening in, in official sector gold holdings. There are many central banks that report with a lag for various reasons. Other central banks have started, stopped reporting altogether. Afghanistan has not reported since the Taliban takeover. Russia has stopped reporting since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And they've even passed a new law now saying that their official sector gold holdings are state secrets. So okay. I, I don't think we'll be hearing from them anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons for countries to have either a lag. But for or, those buyers, even yeah. if they're unreported, there's a seller. So, yeah, there's a seller, but probably coming from the, the OTC market or coming from newly minted gold. New, sorry, newly mined gold, I should say. Um, it's not necessarily one central bank selling to another right. or, you know, the investor community selling out in a central bank buying. So it's hard to track that information. We, we don't know where every specific ounce you know, they're buying is coming from, whether right. it's, you know, a newly mined gold or some existing gold stock. But overall, the picture is that central banks have added a significant amount of gold last year. And the number that you pointed out, a little over a thousand tons, that would be much more than what the IMF data yeah. would suggest. Very interesting. Um, so let's take stock of these two years since we talked about gold back in 2022 now. Um, the pandemic. Uh, you were talking earlier about how when there is substantial risk aversion in the market, gold comes back to play. Mm -hmm. So how did it come back to play in the last couple of years? The pandemic impacted the gold price, of course. The price hit a record high in 2020 in dollar terms. A combination of monetary easing from central banks, but also a lot of fiscal stimulus to support people during the pandemic. That really made the gold price rally significantly and saw a lot of inflows into gold ETFs. But on the flip side, there was a big drop in gold jewelry demand as Jewelry shops closed, entire economies closed, especially the largest economies for gold jewelry demand, China and India, they all had you know, either long or short lockdowns. So that did impact the, the physical gold market, although the price was elevated because of all the inflows into ETFs and financial investment. Um, there are also some dislocations in the supply chain, um, not so much at the, at the mine site per se, but really you know, because global supply chains were disrupted, flights were more scarce, it caused greater disparities in the regional gold prices, the price of gold in different regional markets. Um, so that was overcome, that was uh, fixed shortly thereafter, but it did cause you know, a bit of a disruption then. You run the central bank desk at World Gold Council, so obviously you have a lot of conversations with central bank asset managers. This phenomenon over the last few years, which is independent of the pandemic, which is the weaponization of the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. We saw the U.S. seizing the central bank of Afghanistan's assets in the U.S. and other areas. Uh, now we have seen major seizures for the Russian central bank's assets. So in your conversations, do you feel that central banks are taking those developments into account in their gold buying strategy? Yes. Uh, in, in, in no uncertain terms, yes. They are looking at the impact of a changing political risk environment. Not to say that they believe that they'll have the same type of direct sure. confrontation with the West that Russia has had, but they do recognize that the calculation of political risk is not quite what it was before. I think, you know, you mentioned Afghanistan. Um, the case of that was the U.S. didn't recognize the Taliban government as the rightful government of, of Afghanistan and said only the rightful government can access the Afghan central bank's reserves in the U.S. In the case of Russia, though, it wasn't a case of saying we don't recognize the, the Moscow government. It's that we don't agree with your, your policy decision right. to invade Ukraine, rightly or wrongly so, right? But that is a new reason, a new rationale. So whereas many central banks thought that their reserve assets that were jurisdictioned overseas were basically sovereign assets that had sovereign immunity, 
the case has shown that they are not and that they can't be frozen. Yeah. Uh, if I were a central bank, that is not necessarily the core of the Western sort of, you know, circle of protection. You know, I would also worry, no question about that. Uh, Shakai, earlier you talked about gold rallying hard in 2020 around, you know, concerns about the pandemic, zero rates and so on. Mm. Now, in late 2022, concerns around the pandemic was ebbing. Interest rates were soaring and then gold had a rally. Mm. What's up? So we saw that at that period specifically, central, Western central banks, I think, assessed that inflation had more or less peaked. And they were saying that their, their, um, their tightening cycles were coming to an end or were going to uh, moderate. So I think uh, gold responded to that by rallying because I think that removed one of the big headwinds of gold. You know, interest rates, obviously, with gold not being a coupon-bearing asset, are usually a headwind for gold. Also, at the same time, you have to recall that nominal rates might have been rising, but real rates actually had not risen that much. So I think that was still a strong incentive for people to hold gold because real rates were still very low. Also, there's the backdrop of what you we were saying before, the geopolitical tensions, the war in Ukraine, this, this uncertainty brought by international conflict. I think that might have been some factor, certainly in the minds of maybe some of the central bank investors, but maybe institutional retail investors as well, for them to consider upping their gold allocations. Right. Looking at the report on the 30 years of gold trend, as well as the last couple of years, you know, experience with all this global volatility. Am I correct in thinking that gold is a better hedge against geopolitics than inflation? So, you know, we've done research on both. Um, you know, gold, and, gold is traditionally considered a hedge, a hedge against inflation, but we've actually seen that it's during periods of either stagflation or hyperinflation where it performs well. Mm -hmm. On the geopolitical side, I think we did an assessment where we looked at every episode of geopolitical risk in the last 30 years, and we saw what gold's average performance was at you know, risk day minus 90 to risk day plus 90. And it did overall have an impact, like it would go up during periods of geopolitical risk, but usually it wouldn't be a sustained impact. It would stay, it would stay elevated for you know, a few weeks after the risk incident happened, and then it would taper off. Um, Unfortunately, this, this war in Ukraine has now gone on for a year. It's disrupted many aspects of life. And I think it's really, come, it's really made policymakers question about, is this type of threat going to broaden? Are we going to look at geopolitical conflicts in Asia now, for instance? So I think that's added to a lot of concern and maybe um, created more incentive for people to consider gold. Right. I think I was remiss in not following up on an earlier question when we are talking about the responsible gold mining principle. Uh, could you elaborate on the ESG uh, dimension of that? Sure. So it, there's 10 specific principles as part of the RGMPs. I think there's you know either three or four each, one each for environmental, one for social, uh, sorry, three or four each for environmental, social, and governance. And they're basically very high-level principles that state what these mining companies should be should be doing to make sure that they're compliant with these principles overall. Then it gets into quite a lot more detail. Sure. Each principle has sub-principles and clauses and things like that. So you know, I, I can't remember all of them right. off the top of my head, but it's quite comprehensive. Right. Maybe just on the E part. So put the S and G stuff aside. I mean, just for my general knowledge, I mean, is gold a very polluting activity? The mining and the processing. So you know, there's a lot of work that's required to go into gold mining, right. and our member companies, the ones that have signed on to the RGMPs, have all. Um, stipulated to using the most advanced and the best practices for sourcing gold. But, you know, as I mentioned before, they're not the only members of the gold right. supply chain. So in, in periods, in past periods, there have been issues with using mercury, for instance, and other harmful chemicals. And that's something we really want to, to stamp out. Um, so 
part of the work we're doing with central banks, for instance, is because they're buying usually from these small-scale miners. They can therefore be a, a conduit of disseminating rules, regulations, best practices to these small-scale miners and saying, if you use harmful products or if you source your gold irresponsibly, we won't buy from you. And guess what? We're the only buyer in this country. So if you don't shape up, no one's going to buy your product, basically. Good. A nice stick approach. All yeah. right. Uh, Shokai, uh, such a treat to talk to you about the gold market. And there are so many arcane aspects, but you make it sound <laughs> so clear. Oh, it was a treat to talk to you, Timur. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners as well. Kopi Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. Kopi Time is for information only and does not constitute any investment advice. All 95 episodes of our podcast are available on YouTube as well as on major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research product, including our publications and webinars, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.